daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China ASEAN Expo is underway in Nanning. Chinese Premier Li Chang says China ASEAN relations are the most successful model in Asia Pacific cooperation. Senior Chinese and U.S. officials meet in Malta for substantive and constructive talks. The summit of the Group of 77 and China has concluded with emphasis on empowering the global south. Chinese Premier Li Chiang says China-ASEAN relations have become the most successful and dynamic model in regional Asia-Pacific cooperation and offer a clear example of how to promote the construction of a community with a shared future for all. Li made the remarks at the opening ceremony of the 20th China-ASEAN Expo and the 20th China-ASEAN Business and Investment Summit in Nanning, capital of South China's Guangxi-Zhuang Autonomous Region. Gaowang has more. Work together for a harmonious home and a shared future in promoting high-quality development of the Belt and Road Initiative and nurturing a new epicenter of growth. This is the theme of the 20th China ASEAN Expo this year. At the opening ceremony on Sunday, Chinese Premier Li Qiang was joined by foreign leaders and senior officials from Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia and several other countries. Boosting trade and economic cooperation between China and ASEAN countries and promoting regional economic integration were high on the agenda. Officials also discussed ways to promote exchanges in cooperation between enterprises from both sides. China will adhere to the basic national policy of opening up, deepen the opening up of rules, regulations, management, standards, and other institutional systems, and increase the protection of intellectual property rights. We will make every effort to maintain and promote fair competition and strive to create a good business environment that allows investors from all over the world to feel at ease, assured, and comfortable. Official data shows that nearly 2,000 enterprises are attending the expo, up more than 18% from last year's edition. Plenty of forums are set to take place during the four-day event to discuss China-ASEAN cooperation in diverse areas, including e-commerce, environmental protection, energy cooperation, the blue economy, and more. China has remained ASEAN's largest trading partner for 14 consecutive years. And the two sides have been each other's top trading partners for three years in a row. According to officials, advanced technology, sustainable development, and trade and investment facilitation are high on agenda for this year's expo. Organizers have also set up special areas for digital technologies and industrial design, aiming to boost cooperation on all fronts between China and ASEAN countries. Let us go on reporting. For more, we are now joined on the line by Wang Zhengxu, Professor of Political Science at Zhejiang University. Professor Wang, thanks for joining us. Hi, Xiao Yin. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Premier Li Qiang described China-ASEAN relations as the most successful model in regional Asia-Pacific cooperation. How do you look at this characterization and, and what, in your opinion, are the key factors that have contributed to the success of this partnership over the years? Well, yes, I I really agree the successfulness uh, of this China-ASEAN relations uh, as I think what he called the most successful in the Asian Pacific region. I, and I would actually say I think it's probably the best, the most successful example around the world of regional cooperation. And, uh, you know, in terms of what contribute to this, I, I think it's just uh, one is geography that the two parties are very close to each other. They have been together, living together for thousands of years. Uh, second, uh, the, I think the China and ASEAN are just attracted to each other. There are very high levels of trust and very high levels of willingness to to work with each other to to maintain uh, good relations. So, so the, the general atmosphere between the two are just uh, uh, very amicable. So they are willing to make good things happen. 
Yeah, and, and Li Chang mentioned the importance of creating a favorable environment for development, prosperity, and peace. What efforts do you think should be made to achieve these goals? Well, I think in general things are going quite well. Uh, the relations are very, very good indeed. Uh, you know, these are current uh, summit and expo. Uh, by the way, I, I grew up in Guangxi, so I, I visit Nanning very often and I always, when I'm in Nanning, I always see uh, this uh, China ASEAN cooperation. There's the investment zone. There, there is a, a permanent uh, venue for the China ASEAN Expo. And then, if you uh, go in out of the Nanning Airport, you see the national flags of all the ASEAN countries. So that's very enheartening. Uh, so I think in, in general, the relations between these two, between China and ASEAN countries, are just great. So the, the uh, conditions for development, prosperity, and peace are just uh, quite good. Uh, you know, in terms of challenges or, 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 or what efforts need to be made, uh, I think on one, the, like I said, the commitment of both parties to cooperation and to, to common prosperity are just very, very good, and we need to maintain that. And the other is uh, there are there are especially the external players. Uh, well, just let me say, the United States and some Western countries are uh, wary that China and ASEAN are getting too close. So they are always, uh, the, of, you know, the, the American president was just in Vietnam recently. So there is always the factor that the United States wants to drive some wedge between China and ASEAN. So that needs to be dealt with. Yes, yes. And, and what do you think are the, uh, are the areas in which China and ASEAN countries can further enhance and, and perhaps expand their cooperation? Well, the, the last two decades has, have been great. Uh, the cooperation in terms of uh, manufacturing, this value chain cooperation, uh, things have been going quite well, especially now after the pandemic. The you know, investment and trade are resuming. Uh, the RCEP is now in full operation, so I think the China and ASEAN can do much more in terms of automatizing uh, automatizing the value chain placement. Uh, you know, countries can work together much more. Um, and uh, China, I think, on China's side, well, this uh, Premier Li also mentioned China will maintain its opening. Policy, uh, China can can be much more uh, open in terms of people's flow, in terms of uh, uh, you know in the visa policy uh, and so on, to allow much more people mobility across countries. Mm-hmm. Well, Lee stated that China supports the ASEAN-centered regional cooperation framework and seeks to align the Belt and Road Initiative with the development strategies of other nations. So how can, how can this alignment foster regional economic integration and what will be the implications for the ASEAN countries? Uh, yes, the, the most important thing about Belt and Road Initiative is about connectivity. And China and ASEAN is, uh, you can say, the best uh, place to to push this uh, to to a much higher uh, level. Uh, the uh, connection, the physical connection, in infrastructure connection between China and ASEAN countries, and ac- across the ASEAN countries, there are still much more to be done. Uh, now you have the railway line connecting China's Kunming to Laos. Uh, but the, the, the whole railway network be, uh, linking China, uh, Kunming, and Nanning to Vietnam, you know, Cambodia, then Thailand to Malaysia, all the way to Singapore, is, that has not been uh, completed yet. And, and that needs to be uh, uh, moved forward faster. And then the uh, you know, railway lines uh, within these countries, uh, you know, within Indonesia, now we just had the Indonesia, the first high-speed rail uh, in Indonesia that uh, that went through into operation just a, a few days ago. Uh, but more more of those lines need to be built in, in Indonesia, in in uh, Philippines, and so on. Uh, then there are other connectivity projects such as uh, electrical grid uh, connectivity, and then uh, there are you know, soft 
soft connectivity matters such as internet, such as the financial institutions uh, connectivity. So there are there there's still a lot of things that can be done, and 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 in China and ASEAN countries have the uh, capacities to make these things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Lee also talked about China's willingness to import more competitive and distinctive products from ASEAN nations. So how can this trade dynamic contribute to economic growth for both sides? Uh, they, uh, I mean, ASEAN countries, uh, they, there is already a good manufacturing base in, in some, of, uh, some countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, most notably Thailand too. Uh, but there are l- large space for manufacturing capacity to upgrade it in these countries. And China can be part of this. China can work uh, and help uh, to utilize much more the manufacturing from these countries. And then China can use that as an opportunity also to automatize auto- China's own manufacturing structure. And then, you know, within this RCEP framework, uh, there is also... Uh, Korea and Japan can be part of this as well. So, so this whole region, in terms of uh, improving the value uh, chain of cooperation in, uh, in, in, in increasing trade and in uh, cross-border investment, they're just uh, will make the economy much more dynamic. Mm-hmm. And Lee also mentioned addressing global challenges like food security and climate change. So in what ways can China and ASEAN collaborate to tackle these present issues e- effectively? Well, in terms of climate change, I think now globally, the, the main issue is the United States uh, is still being very slow in terms of energy transformation. But China is leading the way. Uh, China, in terms of shifting toward much more clean energy-focused uh, uh, energy structure, and China can help, can support ASEAN countries in this, in this, uh, uh, this change. Uh, China can help uh, ASEAN countries build much more clean energy, clean electricity generate generation capacity. Uh, then, uh, you know, food security, also internal climate change, the, uh, the other matter is the extreme weathers. In recent years, you know, there are there are region weathers are much more frequent, and China and ASEAN countries can work together in terms of dealing with uh, responding to uh, in crisis weather crisis. Uh, uh, but food security, uh, the you know, ASEAN is a is a very good region for uh, grain for food production. So China can can work with these countries in terms to, to increase to expand uh, food production, uh, also to build a much more efficient uh, food uh, distribution distributing uh, market within China and ASEAN countries. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Wang Zhengxi, Professor of Polit- Political Science and Zhejiang University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Wang Yi, CPC's chief of foreign affairs, has held multiple rounds of meetings with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan over the weekend. The two sides agreed to maintain high-level exchanges and hold consultations on Asia-Pacific affairs, maritime affairs, as well as foreign policies. Wang, also China's foreign minister, emphasized that the Taiwan question is the first red line that must not be crossed in the China-U.S. relationship. He said the U.S. must abide by the free China-U.S. joint communiques and honor its commitment to not supporting Taiwan independence. The two sides conducted candid, substantive, and constructive strategic communication on stabilizing and improving China-U.S. relations. For more, we now join on the line by Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University. Professor Chu, thanks for joining us. Um, so what are the major takeaways from the meetings in Malta? Uh, so first of all, I think this is the uh, latest efforts by uh, uh, both sides uh, to smooth and uh, stabilize the bilateral relations. And we know uh, since the, uh, the early of this uh, year, and there are some uh, troubles between uh, two sides. And then recently, especially recently, there are uh, 
successive visit, visiting from uh, from the United States side. So this time, uh, Wang Yi and the Sullivan's meeting, that is the latest efforts uh, to stabilize the bilateral relations. And the second, I think the timing is pretty important. And we know uh, in the last week uh, during the uh, G20 summit, and Biden has expressed his disappointment uh, not meeting with uh, Chinese uh, President uh, Xi. So I think by now in uh, uh, in November, uh, during the APEC summit, there is a possible meeting uh, between uh, the top is the leader from both sides. So I think the timing is pretty uh, important. And the last one, I think uh, this time, uh, that means uh, the two sides is trying to reopen uh, multiple channels uh, to uh, communicate and to explain uh, to to communicate uh, on many issues. Okay, so both sides describe the discussions as candid, substantive, and constructive. Uh, so in diplomatic terms, what do these words signify and how do they reflect the tone of the discussions? Yeah, uh, according to my understanding, I think candid, that means that both sides express uh, their uh, concerns and their policy positions very directly. And also uh, maybe imply there are some the differences between two sides. And the uh, substantive, that means uh, they are really working on uh, the real issues and try to manage or solve some problems. And the constructive, I mean, uh, I, I, I think maybe means uh, that they are on the same direction or on the same page and try to solve the problems and make uh, some efforts uh, for uh, uh, to to smooth the relations. Okay, but it looks that the Taiwan question remains um, a sticking point in in China U.S. relations, right? So, if we look at uh, what they have uh, said during their discussion, Wang Yi emphasized that the Taiwan question is a red line in China U.S. relations, while the U.S. notice said that Sullivan noted the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. So, how do you interpret the messages from China and and the U.S. regarding the Taiwan question? Uh, I think the United States really highlights their own concern or their uh, their own wishes, right? They uh, mainly focus on uh, the outcome, uh, peace and stability across Taiwan Street. But uh, for, for our side, in a way, uh, I think Wang Yi really highlights the preconditions for the peace and uh, stability of uh, uh, across the Taiwan Street. And uh, one China policy and you have to respect the Chinese uh, sovereignty. That is the preconditions for peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And uh, uh, we, even within uh, the island or from uh, the outside, like from the United States, you have to respect the preconditions of one China policy, and then we'll have a, a peace and st- we'll guarantee the peace and the stability across the Taiwan Strait, right? The United States, uh, you cannot hurt uh, Chinese uh, sovereignty and uh, expect uh, the peace and the stability across the Taiwan Strait. So I think um, they have some that's on the same direction, but they highlight the different things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as you mentioned earlier, the talks came as Beijing and Washington have been taking steps to reconnect after uh, multiple lines of communication were cut last August due to uh, then U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So how significant is the resumption of these lines of communication and what do you think prompted this reconnection at this particular time? I think the uh, reconnection uh, or the uh, reopen these channels are extremely important. If we look at before uh, uh, Donald Trump administration, and there are there are over 100 channels, uh, uh, high level channels between China and the United States, and many issues can directly uh, communicate. Uh, directly communicate and exchange ideas at uh, implemented level. But since then, and almost all these channels shut down, and recently, in the first half of this year, reopened several, right? So I think based on the uh, serious visiting uh, by Blinken or the uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Yellen or John Kerry and others, I think the United States also uh, felt uh, uh, felt very necessary to reopen this channel 
So I think today, uh, fr- from now on, if uh, China and the United States could reopen uh, all these channels or most of the channels, and that will uh, in the uh, at the implement uh, implemented level, uh, that will uh, will much more help to st- stabilize the bilateral relations. Mm-hmm. And it's reported that the restoration of military communications between the two countries was also discussed during the meeting. So, what do you think are the key obstacles in re-establish the military channels? Um, you know, there are a lot of the uh, maybe there are some of the potential for the uh, crisis or contingency between uh, China and the United States military. And especially like South China Sea or Taiwan uh, issue and others. So the communication between the military sides uh, is pretty important. And uh, and now I think the United States side uh, realized this, uh, the importance of military uh, directly, uh, 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 the military channels. So, uh, but the United States also set some uh, obstacles uh, for reopening the military uh, dialogue. So I think if the United States really sincere want to reopen the military communication, and they to first of all they need to solve uh, these barriers like the e- economic sanction against China senior military officials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Wang Yi also noted of China's strong internal momentum and the legitimate right to development. What do you make of his messages there? So first of all, I think uh, why uh, Wang Yi mentioned China development has a strong internal momentum, and I think mainly because uh, on current international uh, uh, media environment, there is kind of a theory called the China, uh, China economic development ceiling, and uh, some media just exaggerate that China is lagging behind the United States again, or the gap between China and the United States uh, is enlarging. But if you look at the uh, Chinese economic development, uh, all the indicators in the first half of this year, and the internal demands is strong and export uh, that is stable. So, and the innovation-driven uh, uh, economic growth uh, already uh, uh, very clear, right? So this is why I think uh, Wang Yi mentioned uh, China has a strong internal momentum. And on the other hand, side uh, cannot be stopped. Or try, uh, China has legitimate uh, legitimate right to develop. I think that is mainly talking about the U.S. economic sanction and especially uh, the United States as for control against the China uh, high tech uh, uh, high tech uh, development and uh, uh, impose sanctions against the Chinese high high tech companies. So this is really the Chinese legitimate right, and the United States just uh, put their economic uh, development as top priority and hurt other countries' uh, interest. Mm-hmm. So in light of these meetings, do you see any signs of a potential reset in the relationship between China and the U.S.? Uh, I think from the both sides, they work very hard, uh, try to stabilize the bilateral relations, and I think maybe... Uh, they are making a potential uh, uh, meeting between uh, the pr- uh, two presidents. And I think the bilateral relations now not important for uh, two countries, but also uh, important for the uh, for the world peace and not just for the uh, politics, but also for the uh, international uh, ec- uh, economy. So I think uh, the both sides already realized that, that this thing, and especially for the United States, Maybe this is the uh, very urgent time. We know the United States will very quickly in the uh, presidential campaign cycle, and that will be much more difficult uh, uh, to, to, to do more. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University. More to come. The summit of the Group of 77 in China has concluded with emphasis on empowering the global south. Okinawa governor is visiting Geneva to oppose the relocation of a U.S. military base in Japan. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us.
Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The summit of the Group of 77 in China has concluded with a call for more participation and say of the global South in the global governance system. Participants stressed the need for a more equitable world order to address poverty, access to science and technology, and to cushion the impact of climate change. First established in 1964, G77 now has over 130 members. It is the largest multilateral coordination organization among developing countries. China has been supporting and cooperating with the group under the framework of G77 and China. For more, we're now joined on the line by Sultan Hali, a retired Air Force officer and author in Pakistan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So the summit has called for greater participation and influence of the global South in global governance. How important is this? Well, this is extremely important,、uh, as、uh, you noticed that、uh, it it has been fifty nine years、uh, since this group of seventy seven and China was established. But、uh, during this period, we notice that there is a clear demarcation between the haves and have nots. And the global South is in the category of the have-nots, but the haves—that、uh, is, the more developed nations—they have been oblivious、uh, and careless about the requirements uh, of the uh, global South. So, therefore, it is extremely important. And this group uh, of G77 has made progress in the near past, and China's、uh, support has made it a little more vocal. But it is extremely important that the、uh, gap is bridged. Mm-hmm. So, do do you mean do you believe that the voices and interests of the global South are gaining increased recognition and influence on the global stage? For example, if we look at、um, the recent expansion of the BRICS and the inclusion of the African Union、um, of the G20,、uh, I would tend to agree with that. You see, because、uh, in the recent past we have seen that the voices. As well as, of course, the interest, as you just pointed out, of the global south, it has gained increasing recognition, and、uh, this is evident exactly from the fact that you see previously the ma- the major groups like、uh, G7 or G20 that they did not include、uh, members from the global south, but now you see、uh, with the recent inclusion or rather expansion of the BRICS, as well as.、Uh, You see the inclusion of the African Union in the G20. This means that importance is being given, the voices are being heard, and、uh, a clear recognition is taking place.、Mm-hmm. Um, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on G77 and China to champion a system rooted in equality. H- how do you look at this, and what efforts should be made to promote greater equality in international relations? Well,、uh, I think the UN Secretary General was on the dot, and by calling、uh, the G77 and China as a, to champion the system rooted in equality, because unless equality is there, a balance is there between the North and the South, the divide or the chasm will continue to deepen. So, therefore, to promote greater equality in inter- international relations, it is very important that、uh, trade. Well, and other burning issues like、uh, climate change, or、uh, you see the dis,、uh, the inequality in、uh, the exchange of、uh, technology. These are the things which need to be improved. And unless、uh, we meet the challenges, especially of a shrinking、uh, economy, as well as uh, the uh, health uh, issues, like we saw the global pandemic,、uh, COVID-19, in the past、uh, three years, it took a major toll of the world. So all these things they need to be addressed, as well as. Taken into cognition.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the delegates urged international institutions to make additional efforts to support nations in the global south in areas such as science, technology, and innovation. So, what kind of support do these countries need to bridge the technological gap between developed and developing countries? You see, let me give you an example.、Uh, In uh, 1949, when China got its independence, it was ignored by the West for the next 22 years, and this was a, a country of teeming millions. But technology, as well as trade, was denied to this nation. And China itself realizes what it means, and that is why it has come to the fore 
to help the uh, global south build its infrastructure now uh, why it is doing that is because it has suffered itself and it knows what is the need for the world to come to the help of these other countries now you see there's a catch over there the international uh, uh, you see haves or the countries which are more developed what they do is that they are willing to share technology but at a price there are strings attached except for china which is ready to share its expertise technological uh, you see know-how without any uh, conditions Mm-hmm. Okay, so China's involvement with uh, the G77 under the framework of um, G77 and China has actually increased over the years. Um, how do you think China has contributed to the goals and uh, objectives of the G77? Oh, it has uh, contributed tremendously. Let me just give you an example of uh, the Chinese President Xi Jinping's uh, initiative of the Global Development Initiative. Now, this is a promotion and uh, you see uh, emphasis on inclusiveness and this is a, co- a coherent proposal which is keeping with the just and equitable new international order now therefore it is very important that china continues uh, its uh, fr- i mean within the framework of the g77 helping these countries and making sure now you, you see china may have a vested interest in this what is the vested interest the vested interest is that its neighbors and also the uh, more poor uh, or the poorer countries they come up to a certain standard of living because unless they do that there is uh, bound to be uh, an imbalance and china will benefit from a more opulent you see neighborhood and therefore china is willing to help out and it is continuing to do so in so many ways now uh, i talked about covid 19 it is remarkable that during covid 19 while some of the more opulent countries they you see they became uh, introverts they were looking only inwards uh, and looking after their own citizens but china was one country which not only developed systems and methods and vaccines to fight the covid but it went out to help the countries which were poorer which couldn't afford the systems which couldn't afford uh, the regimen or the vaccines and it e- even provided most of these things free of cost now these are all things which china's involvement has contributed to the goals uh, of the g77 mm-hmm. okay thank you sultan hali a retired air force officer and author in pakistan thanks for joining us you're listening to world today we'll be back You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Okinawa's Governor Danny Tamaki says he intends to express his opposition to the relocation of a U.S. military base in Japan to the UN Human Rights Council. The governor, who is visiting Geneva this week, is against the Japanese government's plan to relocate the United States' Futama Air Station to Hanoko in the northern part of Okinawa Island. Okinawa accounts for only 0.6% of Japan's land area, but hosts over 70% of U.S. military bases in Japan. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Lin Taiwei from Soka University in Tokyo, Japan. Professor Lin, thanks for joining us. Um, so what, what are the key objections raised by Governor Tamaki and the Okinawan community regarding the relocation of the U.S. military base? Well, uh, Governor Tamaki... Uh has uh, been campaigning uh, as the governor on the campaign on a campaign trail that uh, emphasizes uh, burden sharing uh, when it comes to uh, bases and therefore uh, he uh, noted that and as you have also reported in the program uh, earlier on that uh, the Okinawa territories itself uh, occupies 0.2% of the total land uh, area of Japan Uh, but it currently holds 70% of uh, the bases. And therefore, uh, he is uh, trying to uh, sort of uh, ask for more burden sharing. And at the same time, uh, as the governor, he has a tough uh, job because he has to uh, sort of cater to the constituency uh, that has voted him in uh, and also uh, balance that uh, with the needs of uh, Okinawa people as a whole and also balance that with uh, relationships with uh, the U.S. Uh, personnel, as well as the national uh, central government uh, in uh, Japan. And therefore, uh, because uh, Japanese politics is kind of a consensual 
seeking uh, sort of culture. Uh, he is trying uh, to uh, sort of uh, forge uh, middle ground uh, between these uh, entities. Uh, so the decision to relocate uh, the military base was jointly made by Japanese government and U.S. government. So can the Okinawa governor change that decision? Well, uh, because uh, in terms of uh, military and uh, foreign relations, uh, it falls under the purview of the uh, central uh, uh, government. But because, in, in addition, uh, Japan is a, a liberal democracy, uh, therefore uh, the system uh, allows a spectrum of uh, voices uh, to be heard uh, on the issues. Uh, therefore, uh, he is probably uh, trying to seek uh, social support uh, for uh, his uh, activism as well as uh, his uh, political beliefs and the campaign promises uh, that he has made. So he's trying uh, to uh, sort of uh, seek this uh, middle ground balance uh, between uh, the uh, uh, decision makers. Okay, so as we know, Okinawa hosts over 70% of U.S. military facilities uh, facilities in Japan, despite its small land area. So how has this situation impacted lives of Okinawan residents and what human rights issues are associated with this? Well, uh, Okinawa has uh, both uh, sort of benefited uh, from the U.S. presence, uh, particular, particularly in the economic uh, sector. Uh, the bases uh, form a very important uh, part of the local uh, economy. Uh, it also forms a very important part of the local uh, consumption. Uh, in addition uh, to the tourism uh, industry that benefits from uh, the U.S. base personnel, uh, as well as uh, their family uh, members' uh, visits. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it is a positive in- impact. Uh, at-, at the same time, because it is also a uh, military base, uh, the authorities and the military personnel uh, have uh, exerted the best efforts uh, to minimize the disruption to uh, the uh, daily lives of the Okinawans uh, there. Uh, therefore, uh, that may be also some uh, sort of... Uh, uh, challenges uh, that they may face. Uh, so it is a kind of a balance between uh, the uh, two uh, factors of the benefits and also uh, some uh, sort of uh, daily uh, 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 events that they have to uh, sort of accommodate the basis for. Mm-hmm. So how might Governor Tamaki's decision to address the UN Human Rights Council impact um, domestic politics and, and public opinion in Okinawa and Japan as a whole? Well, uh, he's trying to uh, sort of uh, give prominence uh, to the issues that uh, he has uh, sort of uh, made as his uh, campaign uh, platform uh, to uh, some in the international community. So it's mainly uh, exposure uh, to uh, international community that uh, he seeks uh, and that uh, he wants uh, sort of uh, to be able to uh, use that uh, to uh, uh, balance uh, with uh, the other priorities of uh, the um, uh, military personnel as well as the national government's uh, uh, priorities themselves. Uh, So exposure uh, is uh, what he seeks. Uh, in order to uh, sort of sound off uh, his uh, uh, campaign promises and uh, sort of mobilize perhaps uh, some support uh, from uh, certain sectors that are sympathetic to his view. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, uh, some uh, Okinawans have held a series of events calling for not turning Okinawa into a battlefield. Um, so, I mean, in your opinion, what do you think is the, the real threat to, to Okinawa and um, what do you think are the demands of Okinawans in terms of security and safety? Well, uh, the primary uh, sort of a threat uh, to Okinawa is really uh, uh, the ability to, uh, you know, uh, develop further and also develop the economy uh, as well. And so uh, I think uh, uh, under uh, Governor Tamaki, uh, he has uh, tried to position Okinawa as a bridge uh, between uh, Japan uh, and also uh, neighboring countries like uh, China, for example. And Okinawa is uh, currently attracting uh, and uh, going forth uh, to attract uh, Chinese uh, tourism uh, to the island. 
uh, of late, uh, it has been promoting uh, its tropical uh, attractions, uh, whether it's mangrove uh, swamps, uh, to be able to kayak uh, through its uh, famous uh, waterways and beaches, in order to uh, contribute to the service economy uh, of uh, service sector of its economy, uh, of which it depends uh, very much upon. And so the challenge of Okinawa is to be able to position the island for the next phase of uh, economic growth uh, that it can work with uh, neighbouring countries to attract uh, the uh, tourism uh, to the island uh, and to revive the economy, particularly after uh, the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, which has dampened uh, tourism uh, in the last uh, few years uh, globally. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is the main sort of economic focus uh, right now. And I think uh, Governor Tamaki has also made it very clear when he visited uh, uh, China to bring this message uh, of uh, economic uh, revival across uh, as part of uh, uh, an old uh, Chinese, uh, an old China hand or China friend, uh, Yohei Kono's uh, delegation to uh, Beijing. Okay, thank you, Professor Lin Taiwei from Soka University in Tokyo, Japan. China boasted better-than-expected economic data in August as the world's second-largest economy continues to recover steadily. Value-added industrial output went up 4.5% year-on-year in August, higher than the 3.7% recorded in July. Retail sales of consumer goods reported a 4.6% increase, which beat July's 2.5% rise. The service sector also gathered steam as its production index went up 6.8%. J.P. Morgan raised its economic growth forecast for China this year after August economic numbers offered signs of stabilization in the world's second-largest economy. To find out more about China's economy, our Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, what are the highlights from the latest economic figures of August? Some analysts say China's economic trajectory showed encouraging signs of acceleration. So, what's your view? I think that uh, we are seeing the recovery of the, the, the demand, not only from China, but also from other countries in the world. We would say that uh, it is a really a very difficult time for the first half of this year, and uh, we are in the very bad time about the recovery. But we are still trying to relink with other countries, especially from China's view. And the import and export are seemingly to recover a little bit, but not very strong. I mean, not only from the traditional uh, aspects, but also some new trends uh, categories that is some promising ways that we are trying to look at. Mm. And the value added industrial output was up 4.5% in August. So what are some of the main reasons of it? And are we seeing China is moving up the manufacturing ladder into a more technologically uh, intensive area? Yeah, it's a process. I have to say that we haven't completed this kind of process, but uh, not only from the policies of the government, but also from the market willingness that they are trying to improve their value added in the global value chain. Actually, it's a kind of a cooperation, not only you know uh, between China and other countries, but also from different areas of China. So in China, I mean, for the different regions like the provinces, they are trying to improve their abilities to using their advantages of the resources of the, the manufacturing, uh, some of the agricultures trying to import and export to do more processing trade. Well, as we coping with other countries, I think that many other countries, especially other countries, are trying to do more on the on the labor intensive sectors. So we are not trying to compete with them in this regard. We are also trying to give some information to the enterprises to move upwards in the global value chain while still cooperate with them. We can see that by product type, solar panel, batteries, service robots are the fastest growing categories, right? So how do you see the momentum? I think that is uh, mainly coming from the demand side because these markets are really trying to do more development on the green uh, economy or kind of trade. So we are trying to provide them with these products and services. Well, uh, I have to say that China has accumulated many experiences in this regard, in this field, in the past decade. We are trying to encourage the enterprises to 
to improve their abilities to serve the customers and also different kind of enterprises. So when these other countries want to do that, we can try to export some of them to them. And uh, what's more, I, I mean that some of the Chinese enterprises also invest invested in other countries, trying mm. to meet the demand locally. That is another way. And the European Union recently decided to launch an anti-subsidy probe into the Chinese electric vehicles. And of course, this is purely a protectionism action. So what are the potential risks to global supply chains in the EV industry since, you know, China's prominent role as a manufacturer of EV and also the batteries? And, and will it impact China's EV exports? I think it's uh, really a big news because uh, EU is always a kind of very important market to develop the the EV, uh, the different vehicles like they have Germany, the vehicle producers, and they are really active in investing in other countries. So many of the EVs that imported from China are made by the Germany company or the joint ventures with Chinese companies. So I think that is a really a big impact on the potential of the sustainability of the supply chain of the EVs, because we see that EVs is still in the, I think it's still in the earlier stage of development. So if we are trying to curb them, trying to put more pressure on the cost, I don't think that it is a real good news for the development of the EVs. And another highlight for the August would be the service industry. The peak of summer traveling has led hotels and restaurants to thrive. And in the first eight months, we know that uh, China's service industry scored 8.1% growth. So will this trend continue? Yeah, in the recovering process, I will see that services will recover much quicker, like the impact of the comment, which has a start or early impact of the service in the first phase. So when we are seeing that the trend, if we can still try to put more emphasis on the development of the service, I think that they will still continue the recovery. But if we are trying to put more emphasis on the manufacturing, I think that will also provide some new room for the development of services. Because when we're talking about the services, some of them are independently development, and some of them are cooperated with the manufacturing. So in the manufacturing grew, they will also grow. This is a kind of, uh, I mean, the complicated process for the recovery. And I still believe that China is trying to be better in the service industry sec- sectors in the world. Mm. And the retail sales of consumer goods also reported a 4.6% increase in August. So what does it tell us? Is it a sign that consumers are feeling more comfortable about their financial situations and the general economy, do you think? I think that China is in the transition period to transforming from investment and exports uh, oriented economy to a more sustainable of the consumer or consumption driven economy. So in this process, the consumers are playing more and more important role in the process and they are trying to give better support by the consumption. Well, I have to say that uh, for the manufacturing, for the supply side, they are doing more to improve their abilities to supply the consumer's demand. And we also import so many different things from so many different countries, which is also definitely one good reason for the consumption's growth. So I I mean that from the data, I would see that uh, the confidence of the consumers is uh, in the process of rebuilding. And uh, maybe the income will also increase in the next few months, which is a very important factor to support their consumption. Mm-hmm. And last month, the government introduced a series of measures to bolster the economy. This policy supports cover, you know, taxation, the housing market, business environment, and foreign capital. So how will all this help support the economic activities and recovery? Yeah, it's a basket of uh, policies. We know that Chinese government are not only trying to encourage the rebound of the economy from a certain sector or certain areas. We should try to find some of the complementary effects of those policies, while some of the real estate related policies are trying to give the related manufacturing and also the supply, uh, I mean, the supply of the services more confidence on the future of the development of the market, while something to do with the fiscal or financial policies are trying to reduce the cost. So in this regard, I would say that the world is still under very big or heavy pressure of uncertainties. We should try to first to improve our domestic markets 
and then we can do more to cooperate with the partners in other countries. And on monetary policy, the central bank, the PBOC, recently introduced a slew of policies to support the growth, including a triple R card last week. So when do you think these policies are kicking in and how will they help to bolster the economy? Yeah, I think that uh, the central banks are seeing that the economy is recovery in the in the process. So the market need more money to support the recovery. We should try to give them better support on lowering or not only uh, to increase the cost of the of the financial uh, circulation and the loans. So they were trying to give the banks more uh, authority about the money that they can use for the for the loans, and it is definitely one of the uh, very important for the leverage to to improve the supply of the the, the money to the uh, private sectors and also the consumers. Mm-hmm. And what does the divergence in monetary policies between China and Western economies mean for us? Some economists say it has opened the door for increased international capital flows. What's your view? Yeah, theoretically, it is a kind of impact on the on the flow of the investment. But actually, I think that China's market is uh, uh, very big, and we do have many other considerations for the investors. For some of the influence, maybe they are considering not only about the short-term uh, interest uh, spread between Chinese market and other markets, but they are trying to grasp the opportunities of the long-term development in China. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. China ASEAN Expo is underway in Nanning. Chinese Premier Li Chang says China ASEAN relations are the most successful model in Asia-Pacific cooperation. Senior Chinese and U.S. officials meet in Malta for substantive and constructive talks. The summit of the Group of 77 and China has concluded with emphasis on empowering the global south. An Okinawa governor is visiting Geneva to oppose the relocation of a U.S. military base in Japan. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.